Father, we love you. We thank you so much for the riches of your kindness and mercy that you have poured out on us through your son, Jesus Christ. That when we were deserving of your wrath and your judgment against sin, because of who we were and because of what we had done, that instead of receiving your judgment, you poured out your mercy. You showed us grace, you showed us kindness that we did not deserve when you gave us Jesus. And you couldn't have given us more than you gave us when you gave us Jesus. So Father, as we come to your word this morning, will you remind us of the mercy that you have shown to us through your son, Jesus Christ. And that as we remember what you have done for us, will you give us a heart that aims to show this same mercy to others? That when we are prone to rush in our judgments and to be harsh and to be condemning, that we would remember Jesus. We would remember your patience and your kindness towards us and you would give us the heart of mercy for every person that you place in our path. So fathers, we come to your word this morning. Will you speak to us words that will edify your church and bring glory to your name? You sanctify us in the truth of your word. Your word is truth. Will you speak it to our hearts this morning? We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. Hey, you can go ahead and have a seat and I'll take just a moment to welcome you uh, once again. I especially wanna welcome all of our cross kids into the room this morning. We have all of our elementary age kids. Can we welcome them again into worship today? All of our kindergarten through fifth graders. So glad to have you guys in here, um, all of our Cross Kids. My name is Pastor Taylor, and if you're in Cross Kids most weeks, I'm typically in here with your mom and your dad. We're so glad to have you guys in here with us today. What we want you to know is that Jesus loves you, and he has a plan, and he has a purpose for your life. God has something in store for you that you couldn't even begin to imagine. He loves you so much that you gave, he gave you his son, Jesus Christ. And so we're glad that you're here today. We welcome you here. And, and as a lead out with Cross Kids, I want to use this just kind of as an opportunity to talk about something exciting that's coming for us in the next couple of weeks. Um, if you're not aware, uh, we have three worship gatherings on Sunday mornings. And right now we offer cross kids for all ages at our second and third worship gathering. That's uh, pre-K ages all the way up until fifth grade. Right now at the eight o'clock worship gathering, we have cross kids open for all of our early childhood. Uh, those are pre-K ages, but we're working uh, towards being able to offer full cross kids, um, including elementary ages at that eight o'clock worship gathering in January. And uh, so that's something we're really excited about doing that service has been very well attended. There's a lot of, a lot of it, man, that, that's a, don't sleep literally or figuratively on that eight o'clock group. They come in here ready to go uh, every week. And so we want to continue serving cross kids in that way. You see these kids in this room today. And, and I, this is, you know, I think such an important statistic for us to pay attention to. Um, over 80% of people who follow Jesus Christ profess faith in Jesus before the age of 18. And that means what happens uh, behind those walls in that Cross Kids wing on Sunday morning, that is the most important mission field that we have in this building on a weekly basis. 
we should, as people who are eager to cause his name to be remembered in all generations, be flocking back there to advance the name of Jesus Christ with all of our kids on a weekly basis. And frankly, in a church our size, we should never struggle to have people who are eager to jump in and advance the gospel to the next generation. So we just want to challenge you over the next couple of months um, to jump into serving with that Cross Kids team. They do need some help during this uh, hour of worship, in particular at 1130, but we also want to be able to add that at eight o'clock as well. Um, in our church family, we're just going to have to step up to meet that need. And so we want to challenge you to do that over the next couple months. You could use that next steps card in the seat pocket in front of you this morning. Just write your name and on the back of it in the prayer request section, you could just write serve and cross kids. Or um, there's an email that you should receive like right when this service ends today uh, where you could have an opportunity to serve. I just want to challenge all of us, particularly covenant members. We have um, made a commitment to serving within the body of Christ. Let's meet that need um, as we move towards January. Well, again, if you're new with us today, my name's Taylor, Surf here's lead pastor. Glad to have you here. We've been, as a church family, walking through the book of James over the last couple of months together, verse by verse. So I'm gonna invite you to turn with me in your Bible this morning, if you have one with you, to James chapter two. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one available underneath a seat somewhere near you. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. You feel free to take that with you as you go today. Um, or these words will also be projected up on the screen this morning. So James chapter two, and uh, today we're gonna be looking together at verses one through 13. Kat Von D is a very well-known professional tattoo artist. Um, her name's really familiar from the reality show LA Inc. And over the last year and a half in particular, she's, she's been in the news for a very different reason, a pretty incredible story of transformation she has gone through. Uh, about a year and a half ago, she came out and, and publicly renounced practices of witchcraft and, and occult practices. And over the course of the last year, just through the steady, faithful witness and testimony of a small local church, she professed faith in Jesus Christ. And um, a few weeks ago, she was baptized. You can go to her Instagram page and watch this beautiful video that they put together of, of her baptism. And, and as this video was posted of her newfound faith in Jesus, as to be expected, uh, the internet unfortunately did what the internet does. And there was a lot of harsh judgment and condemnation. There were questions about her motives, about why she was sharing this video. There were accusations that she was just doing this because she wanted attention, because she wanted money. There was a lot of criticism of her past. There was a lot of criticism of her current family dynamic. There was a lot of criticism about the people that were at her baptism that day. Um, it was uh, the, the crowd she runs with, you know, a lot of people wearing all black and heavily tattooed and everything. And, and so she made a follow-up video to address this a little bit over the last couple of weeks. And you can watch this video online. And, and what really struck me about what she had to say is, is she said, you know, I expected some type of backlash whenever I became a follower of Jesus Christ and, and professed faith in Jesus. She was like, I expected that. But, but what she shared was that all the backlash was not coming from her atheist friends. It was coming from people who professed to be Christians. And she said something uh, in this video in particular that really stuck with me. She said, it wasn't my atheist friends. It was really the Christians who were the worst. It was sad to see this critical display of judgment from Christians. I think it's really insane that we live in a time where people still judge a book by its cover. I wasn't aware that there was a uniform you're supposed to wear when you give your heart to Jesus. And she just goes on, she just gives this very gentle exhortation where she said, you know, if that's you, you really need to consider how you're pushing other people away from faith in Jesus Christ. 
And you guys, what should really just, just mess us up a little bit in, in the heart and make us uncomfortable was, is you know, when people who pretend to be Christians, and I say that very intentionally this morning, when people pretend to be Christians that act in these ways that give a completely different picture of who Jesus actually is. I mean, just honestly, how is it we can read a Bible who tell, that tells us about a Jesus who sat at the same lunch table as tax collectors and prostitutes and walk away with a version of Christianity that requires a business casual dress code? How is it that we've made these connections? You know, what Dave showed us last week at the end of James chapter one is that as followers of Jesus Christ, we should be actively seeking out the most vulnerable, those who are in the greatest need, and we should be taking steps to move toward them in the name of the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. So last week, what we saw was a picture of our responsibility as believers to look for those who are most in need and then to actively pursue them and meet the needs that we see. And this morning, we're gonna see the other side of that coin. While last week we saw our responsibility to go to the vulnerable, this morning we'll see our responsibility when they come to us. Again, we got a lot of our kids in the room this morning. We wanna keep this really, really simple today. We'll just break this down Barney style here at the very beginning this morning. Here, here's the sermon for you in four words. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I want you to say it out loud with me together this morning. Mercy triumphs over judgment. As followers of Jesus Christ, when we come to these moments where we have the opportunity to either be critical or merciful in our judgments and assessments of other people, you and I should be people who always want mercy to win. Because God showed his mercy to us whenever we deserved judgment against sin, you and I should be merciful in the judgments and the assessments that we make of others. So from James chapter two, let's read this morning, beginning with verses one through four. James writes, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So how does mercy triumph over judgment in our lives? What, what does this practically look like for us on a daily basis? James shows us first this morning in verses one through four, it means don't play favorites in your assessment of others. Don't play favorites in your assessment of others. First several verses of this passage, James speaks to something that was very clearly a problem uh, even in the earliest days of the church. This has apparently not changed in about 2000 years. And the problem they were facing was that there was a tendency to give preferential treatment to those who had higher social status, who had the most money in their bank account, who uh, were able to, to do the most for them and had the most to offer to them. In verse one, that the phrase show no partiality, that this roughly translates to making a judgment based on what you see. So what James is addressing in this passage this morning is playing favorites. 
It's, it's literally judging a book by its cover. That's what James is warning us and cautioning us against doing. And so here's the scenario that he's addressing. The people are gathering together for worship. The word that's used in verse two is assembly. If you've spent any type of time with our church over the last couple of years, this is a word you're probably familiar with because it's one we talked about a lot. If you dig into the language there in verse two for the word assembly, the word uh, you would expect to find would be the Greek word ekklesia. That's the word that's typically used to speak to what we're doing right now, the gathering of the body of believers, the living, breathing body of Jesus Christ. But the word James uses in verse two is not ekklesia. The word he uses is synagogue, the word for synagogue. All through the New Testament, uh, the word synagogue generally refers to a place of worship where people would come to where they could hear teaching from the Old Testament Mosaic law. But uh, throughout the first century, synagogues weren't just used as places of worship. They were also community centers. So people wouldn't just come in for instruction from the word. They uh, could also use these facilities as school buildings. They could use them also as a court of law. And that's a really important detail for what James goes on to show us next. So here is uh, the distinction between these two. Ecclesia speaks to a calling out of the world. That's what we are as the church. We have been called out of the world uh, and synagogue speaks to a calling in to worship. So ecclesia called out of the world, synagogue called in to worship. And so this is the picture James is painting here. As they're being called in to worship, as they're being called into the gathering, a couple of different types of people show up. One man is very wealthy. He's well-dressed, he's prominent, he's, he's well-known in the community. He's a revered public figure and he's given lots of preferential treatment. They usher him to the front of the room. They give him the best seat in the house. But there's another man who also shows up and he's not wealthy. He's unwealthy, he's unknown, he's unpopular, he's unclean. Therefore, he is unwelcome. You think about it like this this morning. You know, our parking lot tends to get a little bit busy on Sunday mornings. We're aware of that, by the way. I promise you we're working on it. And so just, just imagine this picture, you know, service has already started late and the entire parking lot is, is full, but some, some well-known public figure pulls up in a Ferrari, somebody that everybody would recognize. And, and we're like, man, we, we got to get this guy in here. Like, you imagine what we could do with his money if he was here? You imagine what, what this could mean for our church and, and, and how influential this guy could be if we got him in here? So, you know, we like move somebody, we, we like ask somebody to move out of a handicapped spot, right? We're like, no, you park right up here. And, and then we did the golf cart thing. We just drive it all the way into the sanctuary, right? We just drop him off right here. He got, he got coffee on the go. Like we didn't make him stop up front. Cross Kids was completely full, but some of your kids got booted out so we could put his kids in. But then, you know, right, right but let, let's take a different picture. Let's say 30 minutes before service, parking lot's completely empty and up rolls a 1985 Toyota Tercel. It backfires. And there's, there's six kids in the car. There's plenty of space in the parking lot, but one of our parking teams says, sorry, we're full. You gotta go down to Shell Point Park. And they go down to the park and there's a golf cart there, but there's nobody on it. The person driving the cart says, sorry, I can't take you right now, pulls up. So the whole family has to walk up the road. And, and nobody's checked in to cross kids yet, but we say, you know what? We just don't think there's gonna be room for your kids today. And then they come into the sanctuary where they're told at the back door, listen, you can either stand in the back or you can sit on the floor. You know, we, we hear a story like this and we're like, well, of course that's wrong, right? Like that, that's terrible. Like we, we are of course incensed by this. We know that it's no small thing to mistreat someone just based on their standing and stature in life. I mean, scripture speaks to this and gives a very clear warning for us in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 17, five reminds us, he who mocks the poor insults his maker. 
Every human being has been made in the image of God, which means when we insult a person because of how they look, we don't just insult them, we insult the image of God within them. It's no small thing to mistreat someone just based on their stature of life. And so again, we hear an example like this, we're like, of course that's wrong. Of course, like what kind of a terrible person would do something like this? But guys, let's be completely honest. Some of us, depending on the person, would be prone to do the exact same thing. Think about it like this. I'll just give you a silly example this morning. Who's like the big celebrity couple crush right now? What's the new thing over the last month? T-Swift, right? Taylor Swift and who? Travis Kelsey. Now, personally, I think it's great what Travis Kelsey has done for Taylor Swift. Um, <laughs> nobody, nobody knew who she was till they started dating. One of the greatest NFL tight ends of all time. It's been great for her brand. I think it's really great what he's doing for her. Let's just be honest, like she shows up on the TV right now for a split second in the game and there's all of a sudden 30 million new fans going, there she is, right? Like, I mean, just going nuts. If, if they pulled up into this parking lot this morning, just be honest, what are you doing? Like, man, yeah, you're running down that ramp. You're trying to get pictures. You're trying to get selfies. You hope so badly that Swellsy sits next to you whenever we, whenever we sit down, right? Like you hope so badly that you can share that online, but let's just take a different picture to, to the side is that in all the chaos and the commotion of giving them the attention, also walking up that ramp is a guy who just wrapped up his third stint in rehab. And he's been here before and everybody knows who he is and you are secretly hoping he does not join your community group. And he does not sit next to you. And so again, it's, it's really easy to kind of villainize, you know, this, this preferential treatment of the rich over the poor. But let's be honest, like some of us, depending on the person, we'd be the first in line to do the exact same thing. I've always loved these words from C.S. Lewis that just speak to the significance of our individual encounters with people. C.S. Lewis wrote in his work, The Weight of Glory, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with work with, marry, snub, and exploit immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we're to be perpetually solemn. We must play, but our merriment must be of that kind which exists between people who have from the outset, listen, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. Three things are true about every single human being that you encounter. Every single person you encounter has been fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. Every human being you encounter is just like you, a sinner who is desperately in need of a savior, which also means every person you encounter just like you has a man named Jesus who is eager to be their savior. Is a precious soul for whom Jesus Christ gave his life and died. Now, I, I think an important note to make here is that while James doesn't explicitly address this, your scripture does actually show us the sin of partiality can cut both ways. Um, James is addressing giving preferential treatment to the rich over the poor, but the Old Testament Levitical law also warned against preferential treatment to the poor over the rich as it spoke to how they conducted themselves in a court of law. They, they were not supposed to give preferential treatment just because someone was 
poor. They weren't supposed to give preferential treatments just because someone was rich. And so we have to be careful. You and I can be guilty of partiality uh, regardless of somebody's social standing in light. The, The point that James is making for us here and showing us is we don't show partiality to anyone based on their social standing because we don't make wholesale judgments of people based on their cultural position. We make our judgments and assessions based on who someone is as an individual person. So it's very, very important that we not demonize or canonize anybody based on their standing of life. A person is not bad just because they're rich and a person is not good just because they're poor. The opposite is also true. A person is not bad just because they're poor. A person's not good just because they are rich. We don't play favorites in our assessments of others. What James is showing us here, it's the reminder that throughout the history of the church, the unfortunate reality is there is a tendency to give special preferential treatment to a certain class of people because they have a lot to offer us in return. But church, don't miss this this morning. Whenever we gather together, when we come in this place, this should be the one place on the entire planet where the poor and the powerless and the prodigals are given the exact same VIP treatment that we would give to anybody else. The gospel message tells us that when we had absolutely nothing to offer God, when we were in fact enemies of him, instead of pouring out his judgment, he poured out his mercy. When he gave us his son, Jesus Christ, we don't play favorites in our assessment of others because God has not played favorites in his assessment of us. So mercy triumphing over judgment in our lives means not playing favorites with anyone based on where they stand in life. James goes on verses five through seven to say this. He carries this out a bit more. He says, listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. So James is flipping this whole paradigm now on its head, which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? For mercy to triumph over judgment in our lives, it means that we don't play favorites in our assessment of others. Second, James shows us this morning, it means don't be deceived in your measurement of success. Do not be deceived in your measurement of success. Don't be blinded by what you think success is to the point that you miss what real success is in the eyes of God. So James really intensifies the argument here. By playing favorites with the rich and catering to them, they were playing favorites with the very people who were prosecuting them in the court of law. Very similar to our modern context today, if someone had taken out a loan for their business, but their sales were low or their crops failed, a creditor could come to them and take control of and seize everything that they had. All throughout the Old Testament, particularly prophets like Amos and Habakkuk and Malachi, you see how legal systems were exploited at the expense of the poor. And so the Lord is is continually through the Old Testament speaking through the prophets uh, to speak out against the injustice of the rich exploiting the poor. And so the Lord, the scripture is very, very clear about, about us uh, being very, very careful in how it is that we approach these things. Now I mentioned earlier, uh, the synagogue in the first century, it wasn't just a place where they gathered together for worship. It was also a place that could be used as a school. It could also be used as a court of law. So here is the picture that James is very possibly point, painting for us here. There seems to be a connection between where they're meeting and the types of treatment they're giving to the people that are meeting there. It's very possible 
very, very possible that the same people these Christians were ushering in to sit at the front of their worship gatherings were the same people who were having them dragged out of that room because they couldn't pay their debts. And so what James is writing here is like, do you not see how backwards this is? You're giving preferential treatment to these guys. Like, are they not the ones that prosecute you? That they harass you, they oppress you, they blaspheme the name of our God. And, and, but because of who they are and because of how much money they have, like you're trying to cozy up to them. Meanwhile, your, your poor brothers and sisters in Christ who are rich in faith, you're telling them that they got to stand in the back or sit on the floor. And he just shows that there's a complete disconnect in how this treatment is being given. You know, I've had to wrestle with this in different ways as a, as a pastor of the last couple decades. And, um, but, but no more so than when we first got this church started several years ago, because this is the first time I ever was, found myself in this position. Um, when our church was first getting started several years ago, we were doing all the basic things to kind of get, th- get it off the ground. And that meant, you know, we got to file like a 501c3 and setting up a bank account and we were starting to raise funds and, and receive financial donations. And so early on in the life of our church, I was faced with a personal decision. And, and the personal decision that I made several years ago is that I wanted to be completely ignorant of what anybody was giving to our church financially. And that's been the case ever since. And the reason for that is really twofold. Part of it is for my protection, but most of it is for your protection. You know, for, for my protection, it's making sure I never put myself in a position where somebody feels like they can buy me where somebody feels like they can advance a personal agenda or impose something on me, impose something on our church on the basis of how much they give to us financially. I would just rather not know that, rather not put myself in that position. But part of this, honestly, is like, I, I gotta know my own heart in this. But the, the human heart, man, it's, it's wicked. We have sinful tendencies. And I never wanna put myself in a position where I am making an assessment of you or anybody who comes through our doors on the basis of how much they do or do not give to our church. I never want to be thinking more of somebody just because they give more financially. I never want to think less of somebody just because they give less financially. Because truth be told, if we see how God measures these things in scripture, what we can see is that sometimes you and I are completely wrong in how it is we're actually measuring a person's financial generosity. A good example of this comes in Mark chapter 12, where um, Jesus uh, is, they're gathered together in a place of worship and it comes time for an offering to be collected, which was being done publicly. And, and in this story, there's a lot of wealthy people who are coming forward and they're putting large sums of money in the offering. But then there comes this widow. And how much does the widow put into the offering plate that day? A couple coins. Everybody in that room missed what really happened except for Jesus. And so you can kind of imagine this, like they're sitting in service together. And so here's Jesus. You can kind of imagine him like Peter, James, and John sitting next to me. He's like, hey guys, lean in here. Because you, you see this widow over here? She just gave more than any person in this entire room. You know, the wealthy had given large sums of money because she just gave more than every person in this room. This is the point that Jesus was making. He's like, the wealthy, they've given these large sums. He says, but they gave out of their abundance. They already had plenty. And they gave a percentage of the plenty that they already had. But this widow, she gave everything she had to live on. You know, two cents might not mean much compared to $20,000. But when those two cents are the only pennies you have to your name, it means a lot. 
And Jesus saw this. And what what Jesus shows us in, in that particular picture is that in this world, in the eyes of God, true success is not measured by your finances. It's measured by your faith. And that, that's the picture that he's painting here. So some of us, I fear, man, we've just got the completely wrong measurement for success. What, what are the first words that come out of the mouth of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount? This is Matthew chapter five, verse three. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. What do they receive? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the paradox and the promise of the gospel. The only people who can receive Jesus are the people who know they don't deserve Jesus. It's the people who recognize I don't deserve this at all. And listen, that this is a rebuke to those who measure success the wrong way. What Jesus is laying out there is, listen, you can't buy your way into heaven. Like your money is not giving you admission. Your good works, your social status, your standing in the community, all of your philanthropy, like none of that is enough. It is only the poor in spirit, those who know they don't deserve the mercy of God, who can actually receive the mercy of God. And this is why that's good news for us in, in this room this morning is regardless of where you're coming from today, even if you're here this morning and you are completely crushed by a debt of money, the good news of the gospel says that Jesus was crushed for your debt of sin. Which means that if you're here today and you don't have $1 to your name, but Jesus Christ has canceled the record of your debt of sin, friend, you are rich in the only way that truly matters to God. God does not measure success and wealth and riches in the way you and I measure success and wealth and riches. And when we get this measurement wrong, mercy will not triumph over judgment. James goes on to, to lay this out uh, in verses eight through 13. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. For mercy to triumph over judgment, you can't play favorites in your assessment of others. For mercy to triumph over judgment, you cannot be mistaken in your measurements of sin. Third, James shows us this morning in verses eight through 13, for mercy to triumph over judgment, don't be selective in your judgment of sin. Don't be selective in your judgment of sin. Let me just, a little group participation thing as we start to wrap things up over the next few minutes this morning. Group participation by show of hands here. Who would like to become an expert Bible scholar right now before you leave this room today? Super easy. Sweet. Most everybody in the room. Awesome. Here's, here's how you can become an expert in, in the Bible. What does Jesus say is the first and greatest commandment in all of scripture? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second greatest commandment is like it. What's it say? Love your neighbors yourself. Jesus says on those two commands, love God, love your neighbor. On those two commands, hang the entirety of the law and the prophets. 
And here's what that means. We read every single command. We read the entire counsel of God's word through the lenses of loving God and loving others. In this particular passage, James calls this the royal law. And so this is the picture he's painting for us. You and I are citizens of a kingdom. Jesus is the king, and this is the decree of the king. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love God and love others. And James says in verse eight, if you fulfill the royal law, you do well. But if we show partiality, if we mistreat people, if we give preferential treatment to some over others, when we do these things, we are in judgment. We are convicted by the law as transgressors because of sin. You know, statistically, I've found over the last few decades of ministry um, that approximately 100% of people think they're really good people who deserve to go to heaven when they die. And, and what's always the defense for this? Like, I'm a good person. And we start talking about the goodness a little bit. And, and there's, there's some, some admission, right? Like, well, yeah, you know, I've, I've told some lies. Like I've, I've cheated on some stuff. I've, I've stolen some small things. Maybe I've, I've said a cuss word or two today in my life, you know, whatever it is. And we'll point to that. But what's always the baseline? At least I've never, at least I've never killed anybody. <laughs> Guys, like, can we just admit, like, we're just going just today. Like, that's a really low bar. Like that's a really, really low bar for the defense of your personal morality. Like you and the overwhelming majority of people in human history have never actually committed the act of murder. And, and Jesus especially, man, he speaks to this in the Sermon on the Mount. James gives these examples of adultery and murder and Jesus takes that even deeper to the heart level of anger and lust. And the point that James is showing here is, listen, if you break one part of the law, you're, you're guilty of breaking the whole thing. It, it makes no sense for somebody who's been convicted of murder as they give their defense. It doesn't make sense for them to respond. Yeah, but at least I've never committed adultery. At least I've never stolen anything. At least I've never called anybody a name before. It's irrelevant in that moment. And, and this is why we have to be so careful in the judgments and the assessments that we make of others because James is showing us here, listen, the same God who says don't murder is the same God who says don't commit adultery is the same God who says don't play favorites with others. He's the same God. The same God who says one thing is the same God who says it all. And to be guilty of breaking even one part of the law is to be guilty of breaking the entire thing, no matter how insignificant it feels to you and I. When I was serving in the National Guard, um, I was at a, with a unit up in the Charlotte area, North Carolina, and uh, my MOS was in transportation. I was a truck driver. And um, so I, I did, my last year, my contract, I'd made sergeant the year before, and we were at a drill weekend. We were um, doing some maintenance on, on the trucks that we had there. And so um, we were in formation that morning, and our first sergeant had put it out like, hey, you know, there's going to be some high brass coming in here today for some inspections. Everything really needs to be done by the book. And we had a couple new guys who'd been assigned to our platoon who were fresh out of basic training and advanced training. And, and so my platoon sergeant comes to me, says, I want you to take these two, go down to the motor pool, and I want you to conduct a by-the-book PMCS. That's uh, preventive maintenance checks and services. The trucks that we drove, it was the PLS, the palletized load system. It's about the size of a fire truck. It's the truck that's got the big hook arm on the back of it, so you can pick up uh, either vehicles or storage units is primarily what we transported. So there are literally a lot of moving parts on this thing. It's not just the engine compartment. There are 
are hydraulic components, there's air brake systems, there's a lot that has to be tested. And the whole book for this thing is about this thick. And you know, if you have experience doing this, you can do a pretty quick check of the whole vehicle and see pretty quickly, okay, that's a belt issue. We need to add fluids over here. There needs to be air in that tire. You can read your gauges and get a pretty good feel for where the truck is. But to truly go by the book and go line by line and conduct a proper PMCS, it can take upwards of two or three hours, particularly if you have somebody who's new. And so we go down to the motor pool and I'm supervising them, I'm watching them, and I'm watching them go line by line through the book. And uh, we're about 75% of the way done, almost a couple hours into this thing, my platoon sergeant comes to the motor pool and he goes, he goes, hey, Sergeant Burgess, why don't you, come here, come here, and pulls me over to the side. And, he, and I'm like, what's up, Sergeant? And he's, he's like, I, I thought I told you to conduct a by the book PMCS. I'm like, Sergeant, we're, we are. Like, there's, I, they've, they've got the manual. Like, we've, they've not been cutting corners. I've been watching them going line by line. He goes, what are you supposed to be wearing when you conduct a proper PMCS? And I immediately knew the answer. It was Kevlar helmet. There's a, a swing arm on this truck. And if you're not careful, if it swung out at the wrong angle at the wrong time and someone was standing in the wrong place, it could cause a devastating in, injury. Now, in my defense, I've been with this unit for two years. We had never one time worn our Kevlar during a PMCS. But again, I, I should have known better. It was put out that morning, important people coming. It's gotta be by the book. And, and everything within me wants to resist it in that moment, but man, by the book, he was right. I was guilty of skipping one step and arguably it was the most important step because it wasn't proper care for the person that was under me. And if something had gone wrong, it could have led to devastating injury for, for them. And so, you know, that just seems so insignificant. Man, we're really gonna, gonna start the whole thing over from the beginning? Because that's what he had me do. He's like, I want you to start over from square one. Go get your Kevlar and start over from square one. And we've got a lot of military in this room. You've probably had a completely reasonable uh, request like that before that you've had to work through. And it just seems so silly and so petty and so insignificant, but I broke the one rule that on that day was really the most important rule. And this is what James shows us this morning is, is if you're in this place, you're like, really, God's gonna judge me just because I've shown favoritism to someone? God, God's gonna show judgment against me. He's gonna pour that on me just because I, I favored this, this one guy over this other person that seems so petty and insignificant. But James reminds us if we break one part of the law, we've broken the whole thing and we haven't just broken part of it. Our king has issued a royal decree the law of the land is love your neighbor as yourself. So to break the decree of the king, friend, is to commit an act of treason. We show mercy to others in our judgments and our assessment because God showed mercy to us when we too were deserving of his judgment. James reminds those who are reading, reminds us this morning, listen, think and act as those who have been judged under the law of liberty. You're free from sin. You're free from sin. You're free from judgment. You're free from condemnation. And there's this warning that follows up. He says, if you judge without mercy, you too will be judged without mercy. Jesus says the exact same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. We're reminded the same measure of judgment that we use for others. That's the same measure of judgment that's coming back to you and I. And so, man, that's a warning for us this morning. If you are the type of person that is constantly fixated on the flaws and shortcomings of other people, you are constantly critical. You are constantly relentless. You are always eager to assume the worst. James warns us, you've got something pretty serious coming to you. How quickly we forget that we too were once in need of God's mercy. We deserved his judgment, but we received his mercy. 
because mercy triumphs over judgment. There's two questions I want to leave us with as we wrap things up together this morning. One question leads right into the next. First question for you is this. Have you received mercy from the judge? Have you received mercy from the judge? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that answer is yes. God demonstrated his mercy for you. He showed his love for you and that while you were still a sinner, Jesus Christ died for you. Have you received mercy from the judge? If you're not a follower of Jesus, we're so glad you're here today. And what I hope you hear above everything else is that God has mercy for you. God, God is today, he is withholding his judgment against you. He is withholding his wrath against your sin. It has been poured out in your place on his son, Jesus Christ, so that you could freely receive his mercy and the gift of salvation through faith in the name of his son, Jesus. Have you received mercy from the judge? And the second question that flows from that is, do you extend mercy in your judgments? The evidence that we truly have understood God's mercy is important in our lives is that we are eager to demonstrate that same mercy to everybody else who's around us. And, and if I could just press into that a little bit more this morning, church, if, if you really struggle with number two, it might be evidence that you've missed number one. If you really struggle with number two, it might be evidence that you have missed number one. Merciless judgment is not the gospel according to Jesus. That is the gospel according to Satan. It is Jesus Christ who is our advocate. It is Satan who is our constant accuser because those who have received mercy from the judge, they're eager to show mercy to those who may be deserving of judgment. But because of what we've received in Christ, we want others to know this and to experience this and to receive this in the same way that we have. What the gospel message reminds us of is that when we were not much to look at, when we had nothing to offer, we had nothing to bring to the table that God did not already have, when in fact we were hostile to him and rebellious against him, when we were most deserving of the full outpouring of his wrath and his judgment against our sin, instead you and I got Jesus. And that's really good news. And if you and I could receive his mercy at our worst moments, we can be people who show the same mercy to others, even if we feel like they don't deserve it at that time. Church, mercy triumphs over judgment because we have received mercy. God calls us to extend that same mercy today. So will you bow your heads with me as we, we begin to close this morning? In just a moment, we're gonna um, take communion together. And communion is this clear, visible reminder that the judgment we deserve because of sin was poured out on Jesus instead of us. When we deserved judgment, we received mercy. And so I just ask you again this morning, have you received mercy from the judge? Have you received mercy from the judge? Have you come to faith in Jesus Christ? Have you turned and repented of your sins and put your faith in the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Have you received his mercy through faith in his name? Are you merciful in your judgment and your assessment of others? 
Are you eager to show others the same mercy that's been shown, shown to you? So if you're a follower of Christ, man, today, just, just examine yourself. Are you guilty maybe of, of playing some favorites, of giving preferential treatment to some people because they feel, you feel they have more to offer you than others might? Are you using the right measurement for success? How have you defined success in your life? What are you running after? Are you measuring your success by your finances? Are you measuring it by faith in Jesus Christ? Listen, you, you can be rich in money, but if you're not rich in Jesus, you've missed the whole point. Have you been selective in your judgment of sin? Have you been justifying yourself on the basis of what you've not done? Forgetting that the same God who speaks against the quote unquote little sins is the same God who's laid out commands against what we would call the big sins. Have you been selective in that? Just lay that before the Lord this morning. Just, just confess where you've been falling short. Ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate your heart and life. Show you where you're falling short of what he desires for you. And fathers, we partake this morning of the bread and of the cup. Show us once again, remind us again that where we deserved judgment, we received mercy. When we deserved condemnation, we received salvation. When we deserved rejection, we received acceptance from Jesus. So help us to leave this place today doing for others what you have done for us. That from the foundation of that good news, let your mercy be displayed through our lives into the lives of every person that we interact with. As we come to this table today, we remember the broken body of Jesus. We remember the shed blood of Jesus who did these things for us that we could never do ourselves. We remember that when our sins were many, your mercy was more. And we rejoice in that truth today. So Father, as we sing and as we pray, as we confess, as we repent, as we respond and as we rejoice, be glorified in the praises of your people in this place. We ask all these things in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen, amen.